0: good morning everyone what a blessing to see you all today and to worship the Lord together thanks to all who uh, contributed during the worship night last night that was a real blessing so thanks to the worship team and those who who joined that was lovely a couple of announcements we do have a barbecue coming up at the end of this month so it's just a free barbecue, we hang out after the service and meat and bread's provided and just people bring sides and so I think it's the 26th. So it's free, it's fun, I encourage you to come out to that. Um, and today, being the first Sunday of the month, we, we observe communion together. So if you're born again, if Jesus is your savior, uh, then you are invited to partake of the bread and of the cup and uh, I'll invite people to come forward and receive of them and then I'll lead in a prayer together. So, and if Jesus is not your savior yet, today is the day of salvation and I encourage you to uh, place your faith in him. He is God. He is uh, the one who has paid our price. The one who has given us new life by his grace through the gospel. And so we'll be picking up today in our study of Genesis in chapter 36 if you want to turn there and let's pray. Thank you Father for sending Jesus to be our savior, for giving us new life through the gospel, through the atonement he provided by grace, and thank you for the cleansing from guilt and shame. Thank you for the new life that we have through him that we can we ha- we have eyes that are now opened by you to see you at work, to understand your word, to have the holy spirit dwelling inside of us, empowering to be your witnesses in this world. And thank you that your plans for us don't just include life now, but for eternity. And I thank you, Lord, that you've given us brothers and sisters in Christ that we can join together with, united in your love to serve you and minister unto one another. And Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves before you now and hear what you are saying to each one of us, that we would receive your truth, take it to heart, and live in light of it in Jesus' name. Amen. When a- Child is conceived in the womb of a mother by a father. That DNA it contains genetic information that is going to impact sex, facial appearance, sound of the voice, fingerprints, eye color, all these things that uh, are kind of like handed to you. It's it's like we do learn behaviors, but and you can change your voice. Like I like doing impersonations and and uh, but the thing is. It's like your genetics or the Lord through genetics has dealt you a deck of cards and then you, or a hand that you choose how to play. You can know that like, okay, my family has a history of diabetes or cancer or heart disease. And so therefore you know what conditions you might have to deal with in your future. And you can change the way you live with that in mind. And your family history may say one thing, but You have a choice in how you live. And to date, I've never heard a parent say that two of their children are exactly the same, like even if they're twins, because God created us all individually, and we all have choices that we can make. Identical twins may look the same, but they can be like chalk and cheese, like uh, Jacob and Esau. They were born right after one another. They spent nine months in the same womb, but they were different in temperament preferences and choices especially concerning God and there's so much effort that a parent puts into training their child raising their child with an eye to the future it's like when they're little especially the first child it's like numbers and colors and the alphabet and these things are going to help you in life and in school and then you go to school to help you in your career and in your future And as you're going to school, you're learning not only subjects, but your discipline. You're learning some discipline of showing up, doing work that's assigned to you. I was trained as a child to do household chores, like cooking and doing the washing, dishes, mending, like a button popped off. It's like, oh, you get to learn how to fix that. Because you're not going to always be living here, God willing. You're not going to always be (laughs) living with your parents, but you're going to be on your own. You may have a family. You need to know how to do these things. But as practical as all these skills might be, they pale in comparison of the importance of making daily spiritual choices that will affect eternity. So not just life here, but the life to come. Joshua, he told the children of Israel, choose this day whom you will serve, either the gods your fathers served on the other side of the river or, in, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land we dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So there were options, right? You could serve the God of your fathers. You could serve the gods where you're living or you can choose God, the almighty creator as your God. And I like the order. He says, as for me and my house, he doesn't say my house and me, he starts with me. I need to follow God first and then I can lead my family in doing so. Not just say we need to do this and you do it. Do as I say but not as I do. Take the lead to follow Jesus yourself and it's not a one-time decision. It's a daily choice and that will determine your future more than your genetics and more than your family history the choice you make of who your God is because the God you serve today will determine your future. Genesis 36, starting in verse one. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholabamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebajoth. Now Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basimath bore rule. And Aholabamah bore Jeush, Jaalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. So this chapter, we have a detailed genealogy of Esau, the eldest son of Isaac, twin brother to Jacob. And this follows the pattern throughout the book of Genesis that there's a limited genealogy given to those through whom the Messiah did not come. So when Cain, remember, he killed his brother Abel. He was sent away. God sent him. And then as he left, it kind of wraps up his genealogy. We hear a little bit about his family, but then the, the historical narrative follows the line of Seth to Noah. It talks about Noah and then continues on, focusing on the one through whom the Messiah would come. And that happens here as well, where you have Jacob and Esau. We're given some details of Esau's family heritage in this chapter. But then we'll follow more closely uh, the narrative concerning Jacob and then Joseph and Judah who will, from whom will come Christ. So this passage, it tells us that Esau had taken two wives of Canaan, Adah and Aholabamah. And when he heard Jacob say, you know, hey, Jacob, when Isaac told Jacob to marry a woman within their family, he's like, well, if that makes our parents happy, I'll take a daughter of Ishmael. So he goes and marries Basimath. So he had five sons, all born in the land of Canaan. Verse six, then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals, and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. There came a point when Esau departed from his father's house. He moved southeast of the Dead Sea to the mountains of Seir, located in modern-day Jordan. Ironically, it's marked by red sandstone. So you guys have seen the, what is it? It's the Indiana Jones movie, Petra, right? The red rocks of Petra. Well, that was the area where Esau and his Descendants dwelt. And God had said in Joshua 24:4, To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. So Esau took everything that he acquired from Canaan. He moved away from Jacob because the land could not support them both. Being an arid region, you don't have uh, adequate water or grazing for vast flocks and herds that they had, and so he decided to move on. And this had been prophesied by his father, Isaac, when he blessed him in Genesis 27, 40. He said, by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, and it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Esau's sons were born in Canaan, and he left Canaan. Jacob's sons were born out of Canaan, and he moved into Canaan, the land that God had promised to give him. Now, when this historical book was penned by Moses, Edom was a nation that the Israelites, or the Hebrews at that time, knew. They knew who Edomites were. They were the first group of people that attacked them when they came out of Egypt. The Amalekites attacked them. Though they shared the same father, Edom was was the archetypal enemy of the Jews. And God reminded his people, like, you guys share the same ancestor. Isaac was your father. And it says this in Deuteronomy 23, 7, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. The Hebrews were treated harshly by the Edomites, by the Egyptians, but they were told to not hate them. Like, do not hate them. Remember, you share the same father. And don't hate the Egyptians because you lived in their land. And Jesus went even further than that. He he didn't say just don't hate people. He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those and bless those who spitefully use and persecute you. Now, we're beneficiaries Of God's grace to us. And so we are to give his love and grace and compassion to others, even enemies. Now, from Genesis 36, verses 10 through 30, we see this genealogy followed through successive generations. We'll see that there are chiefs and kings who ruled Edom. And rather than a verse by verse exposition of these names that won't be mentioned again in Scripture, I'm just going to highlight notable portions of them for a purpose. So in verse 12, we see there's a notable mention of Amalek, who's the grandson of Esau. Now, as mentioned before, the Amalekites, they were the people who attacked the Hebrews in Exodus 7, and they were defeated by God. It was that famous battle when whenever Moses held aloft the staff of God, the rod of God, the Israelites began to prevail. But as his arms became weary, then the Amalekites began to prevail, And so Aaron and Hur came alongside Moses and they held him up. They supported his arms where he held aloft the rod of God and the Israelites won that day. They defeated Amalek. Now please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17 starting in verse 14 to read what God said after the battle because it shaped the future. Exodus 17 Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, the Amalekites, they were descendants of Esau. They were of Edom. They were beaten that day, but they didn't die out. They continued to be an enemy to Israel. And so God's like, tell Joshua, who's going to lead the people after you, that these people, you will have perpetual conflict with them from now on. And and he said, what I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to blot out the remembrance of them as if they never had been. And though the Amalekites, they troubled Israel for centuries, God prophesied their end. He said, this is how it's going to turn out for them. God, who was faithful to bring his people into the land, he would be faithful to remove those enemies from attacking them. And then Moses, it says he built an altar. He called its name Jehovah Nisi, or the Lord is my banner. There was no power in Moses. There was no power in the staff. It wasn't like a magic, like a... What would you call it? Some sort of, uh, yeah, a staff that's going to wield magic power. No, the power was in God who upheld his people. As they looked to him, they were helped. They were saved on that day. And now why did God have war with Amalek generation after generation? Because they never ceased to fight against God and his people. They refused to worship God. They refused to submit to him and warred against him. And thus, God would have war with them. The first among nations would ultimately perish. When Balaam looked upon Amalek, remember he looked upon uh, the children of Israel and he was told by the king to curse them. And he says, how can I curse whom God has blessed? And he looked upon Amalek and he said in Numbers twenty-four twenty, then he looked on Amalek and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. So the last, the first nation, one of the first nations would be the last and then perish. Balaam also said that a scepter would come out of Israel, destroying Moab, Edom, Seir, and that Israel would do valiantly, valiant because of their God who would save them, who would help them. And so the children of Israel, they could rest in the knowledge that God would give them the victory, even though the Amalekites and the Edomites troubled them for many years. Doesn't knowing who wins take some anxiety out of worrying about how is this going to turn out? We worry about the future. I think about this with watching gridiron. I enjoy a game of gridiron, which is probably the most stressful uh, spectator sport I've ever in- encountered. Because one play, one call can change the whole game. But something interesting happens when I know the final score. Sometimes I won't even bother to watch. Because I know how it ends. But other times, you're, you're, if you know the result, you can see that bad play by your team and you're like, it doesn't matter. I know how. I know how it ends. I don't have to worry about it. Now you're concerned if there's an injury and you celebrate the good play, but There's rest and security knowing the end. And in God's wisdom, he has allowed enemies to remain like the Amalekites and even Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion. The Amalekites, they're no more. Satan, he is a defeated foe who will be destroyed forever in hell. And in one sense, God tells us the final score, that he wins without a contest. There's not even a struggle for him to have the victory. Yet he allows us to face opposition in this life, opposition from enemies, opposition from our own flesh, opposition all around us so that we might see how little we actually trust him. He wants us to know how small our faith is so that we will grow and learn to rely on him more and more. And in the end, learn to rely on God who is our banner. Now a banner, how would you use a banner in those days? Well, you'd wait, you'd hold it up. It was a signal. It was something to follow. It was something that would guide you. And that's what God is for us. He guides us, he directs us, he empowers us because he's showing us the way we should go. And it like, no one's gonna, it's like when you you take, you defeat the enemy and you take down their flag and you put up your flag. It's like, no one can touch him. No one can take him away. No one can take his power. God allows conflict in our lives so we might be aware of the conflict and contradictions within us that prevent us from fighting good fight of faith and obeying him. Through Christ, we can have victory over sin, over temptations, over addictions. The flesh, we, we can be changed through the power of Jesus Christ. And he allows us to remain in these bodies so that we might learn to trust him and serve him with opposition and then testify of his redeeming, saving power. Genesis 36, verses 39, 31 through 39, we see Edomite kings, verses 40 through 43, the chiefs. And in Genesis 36, 31, it says, Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. God had told Jacob, kings are going to come from your body. There will be a nation come from you. But he didn't live to see it. However, with Esau, he has these chiefs, he has these kings. They have a powerful kingdom uh, that lived by the sword. They have these rocky fortifications. I like this observation of the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says that secular, worldly greatness comes swifter than spiritual greatness. A promised spiritual blessing demands patience and faith. So the Edomites had land. They had military might. They had a fortress. But they did not serve the God of Israel. They did not fear him, so they would not endure. And their idols, their powers, their strongholds could not save them. And so it is for those who build worldly empires on earth. It matters the God that you serve. At best, a king and his kingdom, they are temporary. A king may reign for 50 years, but there's an end to that reign, and there's an end to every kingdom, except God's kingdom, whose kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, over the course of history, we can look through the scriptures and see many um, adversaries who were Edomites. Doeg, the Edomite. Remember him? He was hanging out in the, in the tabernacle when David went in and asked for food and he ended up killing all the priests of Nob at the king's command. Haman, the Agag, Agagite, it's kind of hard to say, Agagite, so a descendant, Agag was a descendant of Esau who created a law during the reign of the Medes and Persians to exterminate the Jewish nation and his Plot was foiled. There was a band of Amalekites when David had left Ziklag and his family there. That he, he and his fellow men, the the Amalekites came. They raided them. They took all their families, their women and children, and then burnt the city to the ground, plundering their possessions. And by his grace, by God's grace, David recovered all. Now for Edom's sin, God would bring judgment upon them. And. The reason why we're taking a step back or really we're taking a a jaunt through scripture to look at the future of Edom because we can see their genealogies. We could read about their dukes and their Kings and you, you could read a lot of names difficult to pronounce. But the fact is because they did not serve the most high God, they would be brought to nothing. And we can learn a lot by their example because God gave warnings and reasons why they faced judgment because They did not serve God. They sinned against God. They had no repentance. So we're going to look at a few of those things together. Now, many of the prophets, they outlined God's case. It's like, this seems wrong that God God would judge those people. Well, he's going to tell you why. And he is a righteous judge. And we'll see that the irony of the idols of Edom is they were a snare to God's people. And you may think, how is that possible? Well, we read that in 2 Chronicles 25, 14, and 15. There was a king called Amaziah who ruled in Jerusalem. It says, now it was so after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites that he brought the gods of the people of Seir, set them up to be his gods and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Amaziah, and he sent a prophet who said to him, why have you sought the gods of the people, which could not rescue their own people from your hand? So King Amaziah of Judah, he did a foolish thing. Through the power of God, they defeated the Edomites, but he souvenired their idols and he set them up. And it says he burned incense to them and he bowed before them. You know that King Amaziah was a man who's described as doing right in the eyes of the Lord, except not with a pure heart. And who among us can say, my heart is pure? Here's a king who was marked by doing what's right, and he was pulled into this idolatry. So you say, who can do this? Well, me and you. If Amaziah can do it, we can do it. We are at risk when we take our eyes off the living God. We stopped trusting him because the things that Amaziah did, he did some amazing things. It said that he followed the law in punishing evildoers and not their children. And then when he had hired mercenaries for a hundred talents of silver, he obeyed God that said, send them home. Don't use them. Yeah. You're out a hundred talents of silver. That's 3,400 kilos of silver. Millions. He said, okay, God, I'll obey you with all this. I'm, I'm, I will lose that money. I will lose a hundred talents of silver because I want to obey you. But what does he do? He's bowing down to these idols. So this is a warning to us that we too can be swayed from doing what's right when our heart is not right before the Lord. He had idols in his heart and it led to his demise. It led to his downfall because when he was confronted by a prophet, so God sent a prophet To to say, hey, why are you doing this? And he says, don't make me kill you. And God's like, as you are going to do, thinking to do to him, that's what's going to happen to you. I will bring this upon your own head. And so it's relevant for us to see what led to the demise of anointed kings, kings chosen and anointed by God. What led to their downfall? What led to the downfall of a nation? We shouldn't be walking in their steps. By God's grace, we can look and learn and avoid the evil. So from the reign of David, we read, the kingdom of Edom grew weaker, but their disdain for God and their hatred for God's people remained as potent as ever. They gladly watched when the children of Israel suffered at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They had these defeats and prolonged sieges, and they were finally overthrown. And this bigotry, this hatred towards Israel was demonstrated in Psalm thirty-seven seven. This is what the, the psalmist said. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it. Raise it to its very foundations. He recalls, you know, when Israel was getting sacked, when Jerusalem was taken by the Babylonians, they were like, bring them down raise it to the ground, uncover the foundations, tear down the temple, tear down the walls, ruin them. They were celebrating. They were drinking and celebrating the the fall of Israel and the death of people. It's like they cheered on the enemies to annihilate, to destroy. And this is one thing that led to their demise. The Edomites was their desire for revenge. Ezekiel 25:12 It says thus says the Lord God because of what Edom did against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and has greatly offended by avenging itself on them therefore thus says the Lord God I will also stretch my hand out against Edom cut off man and beast from it and make it desolate from timon Dedan shall fall by the sword I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel that they may do in Edom according to my anger and according to my fury and they shall know my vengeance, says the Lord God. So the Edomites, they took vengeance upon the Israelites, and God said, they will see my vengeance. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So in addition to vengeance, that desire to avenge themselves, we see they had hatred in their hearts. And it was fueled by wrath and anger. Amos 1, 11, and 12. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Timon, which shall devour the palaces of Bosra. So, wrath, it's described as a sinful work of the flesh. It's connected with rage and outbursts, indignation and excess. And this word in Amos, wrath, it's rendered arrogant pride in Proverbs 21, 24 in the King James. So it's like arrogance, hatred. Have you, has anyone in here ever held a grudge against somebody? And you celebrated when they got what they deserved? You were like, yes. Know that when you're looking at these Edomites, you are seeing a reflection of yourself. I need to... I need to admit this. Like, have I done what they did? Now, I haven't annihilated anybody. But that's where hatred leads. That's where vengeance leads to death. And the death of those who are ensnared by it. We see that God can wield wrath right? Because he's a righteous God. He's compassionate. He's just, he's merciful. His judgment is always mixed with mercy. But the wrath of man, it says in Ephesians 2, 3, it bows to the lusts of the flesh and the mind. And because the Edomites justified wrath, they pursued to destroy. It says they cast off all pity. They didn't care about them. In the New Testament, when we see exhortations to put off wrath, we always see it connected or very often connected with the words we say. Because we might think that wrath is just like uh, getting into punch-ups and getting physical with people. But really, it's the words coming out of your mouth that's revealing a heart that has hatred. Wrath towards them. So angry words, malicious words, slanderous words. And when we put off restraint and we go, you know what, I'm fed up and I'm gonna give you a piece of my mind without love or care, that is wrath. That is sin because we always go too far. We overstep the line and transgress. And when wrath becomes a way of life for you, so it's one thing to have an outburst. We should confess that is sin. But when it's a way of life for us, it will destroy us like it did the Edomites. God judged Edom for taking vengeance, for wrath, and we see for violence against God's people. Joel 3.19, it says, Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness because of violence against the people of Judah, for they have shed innocent blood in their land. We read back in early Genesis, God looked upon the world and he saw that it was filled with violence. It was corrupted. Now, violence, again, isn't necessarily physical. It is asserting self without regard of God or others, not caring about what others feel. It's caring for yourself and doing what you want. So domestic violence, it's a pattern of abusive behavior used to gain control or power or influence over others, whether it's intimidation, threats, humiliation, and verbal assault. So it can be things you say. It can be things you withhold, right? That violence, it is not always physical. So we can be guilty of violence without lifting a finger. When we live, live to please self and to subjugate others to our will, that is Violence. So it's violence to manipulate someone by fear, by guilting them to comply, by putting them down, by coercion, by isolation. This is us. Like, this is the flesh. This, these things mark the flesh because we, from a very young age, we want our way. This is totally contrary. Violence is contrary to God's will because he desires that we would willingly submit to him and others, pleasing him by loving others as he loves us. So, and if we get to the book of Obadiah, the entire book is about Edom and why God would bring judgment upon them. Their rejection of God, their idolatry, vengeance, wrath, violence, it all came from a heart of pride. So you can please turn there, Obadiah chapter 1. Starting in verse one through four, pride, that was the sin that brought Satan down because he said in his heart, I will be like the most high. I will. And his I will was contrary to God's will. Obadiah. Now it is a, it is a small book. It's between Amos and Jonah, kind of towards the middle or just beyond the middle of your Bibles. Or oh, yeah, you could just search it if you got a phone. Or if you have tabs. Do they even use tabs anymore? Anyone, anyone here have a Bible with tabs on it? Okay. They used to be quite the rage until they rip out of your Bible, and then you have a a, a damaged area, so... Yeah, just we used to learn the books of the Bible by jumping rope. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Great exercise, and it teaches you the books of the Bible. It, uh, I highly recommend it. So, I don't know how it would be good on your knees at, at my age, but uh, I'd probably just fall over. Obadiah 1, starting in verse 1, it says, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down says the Lord. So God's like, Edom, your pride has deceived you. You've been tricked. You think that you can protect yourself against other nations and that you're out of my reach. Well, I'm going to show you something different. Like Satan, who was lifted up with pride, the pride of Edom, it led to their downfall and God summoned nations against Edom And they said, who will bring me down to the ground? Answer, God would. I will bring you down, he said. It doesn't matter if you build a stronghold where the eagles soar or even in the stars. I will bring you down from there. And so he outlines the sins of Edom and the consequences for their sin. And he would make them reap what they had sown. In verse 15, it says, for the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to read through the whole book, uh, but I will summarize God's case against Edom. And amazingly, God is so gracious. He gave Edom more time to repent than his own people because they were celebrating the fall of Jerusalem and Edom was still a nation. God gave Israel almost 500 years to repent of their sin. And he gave Esau, his children, his descendants even more because they lived to see the fall and they celebrated it. Even then they could have repented. There was hope for them in the God of Israel. But this is what led to their fall. He says, when, when the children of Israel were defeated, The Edomites stood idle on the other side. They saw their own flesh and blood suffering and struggling. And instead of lending a hand, instead of showing compassion, they just watched. They approved of the suffering of God's people. They're like, good. They approved of it. It was as if they were doing it. And when they were taken captive, it says they celebrated the day of their destruction. They delighted in their distress. Oh, they're struggling. Awesome great. They were glad to see Israel suffer. This is so contrary from the heart of God who does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would repent and turn and be saved. He wants to save people, not destroy them. That's why Jesus came. And then when the Israelites fled their homes, the, is- the- Edomites, they swooped in to take of the spoil. They plundered their houses. So they are on the run. And while they're on the run, they're in their houses rifling through their stuff to enrich themselves. They were only thinking of themselves. And when they ran from their enemies to escape capture and death, it says they met them in the way. They blocked them and daubed them in. Hey, there's another family getting away over here, Babylonian sir. There there they are, there are the enemies, and so they directed them to capture them and to execute them. So they, they helped the Babylonians. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had been tasked by God to judge Israel, and the Edomites hypocritically stepped in to assist. That was not what they were called to do. And as they had done, it would be done to them because guess who would take them out? Nebuchadnezzar. He would scatter them. They would be dispersed. They would be subjugated and memorialized in the Bible as a warning to us. Because all this is written for our learning that we would heed and be wise. So I was looking at Edom and the things they were doing. They're delighting in destruction. They're plundering and thieving. And I'm like, they, they really resemble Satan in the way that he operates, right? He, he comes to steal, to kill and destroy And they were rejoicing to do all those things. And then I said, well, on the flip side, let's see how different Jesus is than the Edomites and the conduct that they showed in the book of Obadiah. So Jesus, a complete contrast, instead of standing idly by, passing by on the other side, what did he do? He came to those who were wounded, to those who were, like in the the Good Samaritan, in the parable Jesus told the Jew who was beaten and bloodied and robbed and left for dead, the Pharisee and the Levite, they passed by on the other side. But the Samaritan, a people hated historically by the Jews, he came to him and at his own expense, he put him on his animal. He poured on oil and wine. He took him to a, a, uh, an inn and said, whatever, here's some money and whatever more you pay, I will repay. So it's all on me. His recovery is my responsibility. That's what Jesus did for us. When we were dead in sins, beyond hope, he has come. He didn't just pass by. He didn't stand idle and go, well, they're getting what they deserve. No, he extended grace to us. He didn't just stand by grinning when people receive the wages of sin and death, or he's digging through our pockets for something of value, but he values people because he loves them. Rather than enriching himself, Jesus became poor for our sakes. He put on human flesh. He became the servant of all. He laid down his life on Calvary. He chose to die to pay the price of our sins so we could be atoned for. It's like he was cut off so we could be grafted into the kingdom of God as the children of God. We don't have the capacity to change our genetics. We can't change who our family is. And we naturally have so much in common with Esau, but we can have a new spiritual heritage when we repent of our sin and we put our faith in Jesus who has come to save us, to deliver us, and redeem us. And we can choose our idols, we can choose our sin, or we can choose the Almighty God as our Father who will save So we can follow the pattern of the world and leading to death, of pride, of arrogance, or we can repent and cry out to the rock of salvation who grants abundant, everlasting life. So Jesus, he's the king and kings and Lord of lords. His, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Edom, no more. So as we prepare to receive communion in obedience to the command of Christ, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation 1, starting in verse 4. Now, before Jesus went to the cross, as they observed the, the Passover meal together, he took elements of that meal and pointed to what would take place in a day's time, that he would be broken, that his blood would be poured out, And that he would provide atonement for sinners. And so he said, take, eat of this bread that's broken to symbolize my broken body and drink of the cup of the new covenant in my blood that would supersede the covenant of law. And he said, in doing so, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 that we proclaim our Lord's death until he comes. Because Jesus, he went to the cross he died, he was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead and he ascended to the Father where he lives to make intercession for us. And one day he is going to return. And so we must be ready for him. He is risen, he is living. So I wanna read this passage in Revelation 1, starting in verse four. It says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When Jesus died on the cross, he demonstrated love for us while we were sinners. We were enemies of God. We were strangers. We were cut off from the commonwealth of God. But now we have been brought near through his shed blood. That we now have forgiveness possible. And because Jesus was without sin and his sacrifice was acceptable, he provided that payment that we can receive. By faith in him. It's like we can go from being dead in sins to being alive to God, washed clean, free of guilt and shame. And he says, made kings and priests unto God. We've been redeemed. We've been purchased. We have a new father now. We have a new life because we've been born again. And now the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within us. And I love that. Kings and priests. We were once slaves to sin, but now we can rule over it. We can learn to keep our vessels in purity. And we who were unclean due to our wickedness, now we've been anointed with the Holy Spirit and serve him as his ministers, like the priests did, who were anointed with oil. We've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. So the God you worship, it determines your future. And naturally, we have everything in common with Edom. That's our natural state. But Jesus has come and paid the price so that we can be redeemed. We can be washed clean. Now, it would be very cool if you could show me that you descended from a king. Like, you know, my great, 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 great grandfather was the king of this nation at one point. So I'm royalty. That's great. That's really cool. I'm not going to ask you where your, your throne is or your crown, but um, how much better it would be to show that you are the child of the king of kings who's alive and who rules and reigns over a real kingdom, the kingdom before all other kingdoms must bow because we have Christ as our king. So let's be those who confess our sin and repent, who, who say, you know, there are aspects of my life and be specific that look a lot like Esau or Edom, even though Christ is my king. And Lord help me, help me to walk in your ways, having been purchased and cleansed by him. And it's so amazing that God in exchange for our tears of sorrow, for our sin, will change them to tears of joy because he is a savior and a redeemer. And if you do not know Christ, give your heart to him, give your life to him, confess your sin and repent and, and confess. And there's, there's no shortage of things to confess, but know that there is life and forgiveness and a future for those who are in Christ. And that offer is extended to everyone. No one is too far from God because he has come to us. He has become a person like us so that we could be purchased, and redeemed by his grace. So could I invite the worship team to come up, please? And we will sing a song. During that song, if Jesus Christ is your Savior, if, if God is your Father, then come. please come up and take of the cup and the bread, and then I will just lead us in a prayer so we can partake together. And let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you have sent Jesus to be our savior because sin is so so wretched and ugly and it just mars us who have been created in your image. It dooms us to destruction. There was no hope for us in our sins, but you have changed everything by sending Jesus to be our savior, to be our king, to be, and for you to be our father, adopting us by this new covenant in his blood. So we thank you, Lord, that you have provided a way of escape for us. That you've provided a way to receive eternal life and forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see our need for you, how, how much or how little we actually trust you, and that we, we look to you now to provide guidance and strength and wisdom so that we might love one another as you loved us, how we might be as Jesus is, who is holy and undefiled and perfect, full of compassion and mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you have made a way of salvation. And I pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in your way, that we'd be not, not like the Edomites who gave place to hatred and pride and violence, see, self-seeking, self-seeking thinking they were beyond the reach of God, thank you, Lord, that you have come to us. We thank you and praise you, Lord, for your goodness to us all, for receiving us into your kingdom when we trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.